If you enjoy learning about NDM, you have to join us at the 16th International Conference on Naturalistic Decision Making. You'll get to engage directly with NDM experts and thought leaders from around the globe. Learn about the latest research that's helping deepen our understanding of expertise and explore immersive interactive experiences that can help accelerate learning and proficiency in your organization. It's all happening this year in Orlando, Florida from October 25th through 27th. See the full agenda and find out how to register for in-person or online attendance by visiting our website, naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Brian Moon from Perigee and Technologies. And I'm Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. Today, we welcome John Schmidt to the podcast. John is a senior research associate and the head of the Shadowbox Danger Division, which focuses on decision training for law enforcement, military, firefighting, and other high-risk domains. John is a former Marine Corps infantry officer, and as a captain, he authored Warfighting, the manual that introduced the Corps' new maneuver warfare operational doctrine and became the manifesto for the Marine Corps reforms of the 1990s. Warfighting has been reprinted commercially as a management guide for business leaders. He also invented and popularized Tactical Decision Games, or TDGs, which have become a staple of Marine Corps training and have been exported to other domains. In 1994, he authored Mastering Tactics, a Tactical Decision Games workbook, and he's authored hundreds of TDGs. In 1999, he and Gary Klein developed the Recognitional Planning Model, a staff planning methodology based on Klein's Recognition Prime decision model. His hobbies include cycling, soccer, reading, and arguing with Gary Klein. Welcome, John, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. So as the introduction suggests, uh, your road to NDM traveled through somewhat of an operational tunnel. I wonder if you can kind of go back and tell us how you came to discover NDM. Sure, I can do that. So... Um... Graduated from college, got my commission in the Marine Corps, and I had always felt that the essence of military command was decision-making, that the thing that distinguished the great captains of history from everybody else was the quality of the decisions that they made, the strategies and the tactics that they used. But I discovered that that wasn't something that we really studied a whole lot. We studied a lot of leadership. We studied management, but we didn't really talk about decision-making, which was strange to me. To the extent that we got any kind of training it was what we called the military decision-making process, the MDMP, which is an example par excellence of rational choice theory. And um, so I remember as a lieutenant in the basic school, which is the school that all Marine Corps second lieutenants go to to learn to become officers, being taught the MDMP and being taught um, that this was the proper way to make decisions. And that if you didn't do the MDMP, you were you're sort of being cavalier with the lives of your men. And uh, this was a problem for me for several reasons. First of all, it was I was pretty sure that Alexander the Great and Hannibal and Napoleon and those guys didn't do the MDMP. And it was also, it made no sense to me from a theoretical point of view, because as a platoon commander who's got 10 seconds in a firefight to make a decision, you can't possibly be comparing multiple courses of action and evaluating them in parallel. Um, and, and third, it, it was completely in consistent with any experience that I had ever had of making decisions at any point in my life. It, it just didn't make sense to me. Uh, but fourth, um, who was I? I was just a second lieutenant, so what did I know? So I, I, I really struggled with it um, quite a bit. Um, and then in 1989, uh, I was reading uh, Military Review, an article by uh, Dr. Gary A. Klein called Strategies of Decision-Making, in which he laid out the RPD, the Recognition Prime Decision Model. And I read it and I thought, this guy, this guy gets it. This guy is describing exactly 
what I do. And so for the first time, my understanding of decision making was was being validated. Um, and it was a revelation to me. It, uh, I mean, really changed everything about my approach. And so I've, um, I've been an MDM guy ever since. So, so you say you were struggling with this. I, having uh, watched you engaged in uh, public discourse before, I, I can only imagine what that looked like. But what were you doing as a student to get across that this NDMP was not fitting well with, with how you are understanding the way the world work? Were you... <laughs> Arguing and debating with instructors, or, or how did you go about it? Um, in the basic school, I was not. In the basic <laughs> school, I was trying to get through the basic school. Yeah. So I was keeping my mouth shut, but it, but it never felt right. I talked with my mm. peers about it, mm-hmm. um, and I was already reading quite a bit. Then I was reading memoirs and and whatnot, and and nothing that I was reading comported with what we were being taught. So I, I was always wrestling with this contradiction, but, but there was always in the back of my mind, maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe I'm just screwed up and mm. you know, everybody else is doing it right. Uh, which is why when I read Gary's article, it was so important because it, it was a validation for me in a lot of ways. But I, di- I mean, I did start arguing with people about it later. <laughs> I, did, I did write um, a couple articles in the Marine Corps Gazette on decision making, in which I sort of started to to poke at the the model a little bit. I never really took it on directly, though. Right. Yeah. And and so those those articles, I'm guessing, sort of led later to some of your, um, as we call it, the manifesto, uh, the war fighting uh, document. Can you kind of talk about how that came about? Sure. So um, the Marine Corps, when I entered as a second lieutenant, was was undergoing some reforms. It was struggling anyway. Mm. Um, and those struggles eventually led to some reforms that were known as the maneuver warfare reforms. All of the military services came out of Vietnam with problems um, and suffered through dysfunction. And, and um, so all of the services kind of went through this period of introspection uh, and it, it manifested itself differently in, in each of the services. The Marine Corps and the Army, I think, underwent the most introspection because they felt the brunt of Vietnam the most. Um, and the army did it in a, in a pretty organized and methodical way, like the army always does. And the result was a new doctrine that they developed called Airland battle, which turned out to be very successful. It was designed to fight the Soviets, but it turned out to be very successful in, in the Gulf war in 1990, 91. Uh, the Marine Corps went through the same process. It was not nearly as orderly or methodical. It was more like a food fight. Uh, waged on the pages of the Marine Corps Gazette, where we argued about what we should be and how we should operate and, and how we should be different from the Army and all those kinds of things. And, and the, the end result was the adoption of maneuver warfare doctrine. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time um, to be tasked with, with writing the book, uh, Warfighting, which became the manifesto, as you said. And so uh, I worked directly with the Commandant to write Warfighting in 1989 was when it finally was published. So it sounds like this exposure to to RPD and, and your writing Warfighting were right about in the same era. Do, do you recall any particular influences that you took from this revelation about Gary's work to that, uh, to that writing? No. Warfighting actually predated mm. uh, my exposure to Gary by uh, a little bit of time. So I, I was not familiar with Ga- Gary's writing directly, but I, I had my own ideas about, you know, intuition and analysis and, and how they work together in decision making. And some of that found its way into the book. Uh, the book talks about, uh, talks about decision making a little bit. Right. Yeah. And, and so from there, the next part of our introduction was about T. TDGs, can you sort of tie that thread together for us? Where did the TDGs come from and, um, and how did you become the, the TDG person? Sure. So the, the two are, were really intimately connected in, in my mind. I, I don't know that a lot of people recognize that. Um, so I was writing War Fighting, which is a fairly theoretical and abstract book. Most military manuals are very much how-to kinds of books, you know, with lots of tactics and techniques and procedures. This wasn't that at all. This uh, maneuver warfare really is more of an operational philosophy than it is an actual tactical doctrine. 
it's it's based on very broad principles like you know commander's intent and and decentralization and focusing your efforts against critical enemy vulnerabilities and using tempo and surprise and boldness but there's very little about actual tactics and and a lot of marines struggled with that because they're you know they're thinking okay i get it but what does it really look like to do it and and so i i was wrestling with well all right, how do we how do we show people what it looks like um, when there are no specific you know procedures or or, or or methods to follow? And I was actually up in in Washington at a professional group. There were at this time there were lots of little sort of professional informal groups that would meet and, and talk about different issues. And uh, a friend of mine ran one up in Washington D.C. At, at the barracks at Eighth and I. I was stationed in Quantico, Virginia. And I went up and he had invited the, the military attache from the West German embassy at the time, uh, Colonel Hasava Nuslar, to talk about German methods and how, what the Germans did. And we were talking, I think we were talking about the sort of uh, initiative um, with a, an understanding of the bigger situation, that low-level commanders would exercise initiative on their own authority without receiving orders, but based on an understanding of the bigger picture. And he, he just pulled a map out of his briefcase, which I thought was impressive that he was always walking around with a map. Uh, and he just said, just as an example, imagine that you're here and, and you've been given this mission to go capture this bridge. And as you're marching toward the bridge, you hear a huge explosion and you see a big dust cloud. What do you do? And the answer is, well, obviously the bridge has been blown. You can't get that bridge. Is there another bridge that you can go to and seize it anyway? Um, and he, as he was doing this, I thought, this is exactly what we need. What we need is scenarios like this to make these theoretical concepts concrete for people. And at the same time, he wasn't using it as a decision-making exercise per se. He was using it to illustrate a concept. But at the same time, because of my interest in, in decision-making, I'm, I'm thinking, yes, this is, this is how we also can train decision-making in this environment of subordinate commanders exercising initiative on their own authority. And so I went home that night and started drafting up what became Enemy Over the Bridge, which was the very first TDG to appear in the Marine Corps Gazette, stayed up all night, wrote the thing, went in the next morning, showed it to some friends, they liked it, sent it to the Gazette, uh, and the, the editor of the Marine Corps Gazette, Colonel John Greenwood, called me back and said, yeah, I love it, I'm going to publish it. Um, and we decided what we would do was we would solicit solutions. We would encourage readers to submit solutions to that problem, and then we'd select a few and publish those in the next issue of the magazine. And the Gazette got inundated with solutions, just absolutely inundated with solutions. And Greenwood said, well, all right, well, I want to do this every month. So every issue for about the next 12 or 15 years had a new TDG um, that uh, really changed the sort of the whole approach to training decision-making and, and the approach to decision-making in, in the Marine Corps, and also helped to institutionalize maneuver, uh, maneuver warfare concepts. So it was, it was, but it was directly tied to maneuver warfare, right? So making good decisions to me meant making good, using good tactics and good tactics to me equated to maneuver warfare. So the, the two of them were, were really enmeshed. It's a great story. The, Initial thought for putting the scenario in, what did you think people were going to do with that? Or what did you, what did you suggest they do with it? So if, if, if we weren't necessarily thinking to solicit the solutions initially, what were you thinking people would do with it? Well, well that was my idea to, to have the Gazette mm -hmm. uh, solicit solutions. But even if they just did it on their own, like a crossword puzzle, they were still going through the decision-making exercise, right? So, so the tasker was in a time requirement of five minutes, come up with a decision in the form of the orders that you will issue and then draw an overlay of your plan. So even if you didn't submit it to the Gazette, you right, still right. had the value of, of going through the problem and, and, and doing the exercise. Right. Yeah. So, so that structure became sort of set in stone then for the next like you said, 12 to 15 years. And ever it. since then, it really yeah. it really changed the training culture of the Marine Corps. They started using TDGs in the schools. The basic school um, that I talked about, the school for lieutenants, they had four giant classrooms. Each of them had just rows and rows of tables where you sat. And, and the, the, the basic school took all the tables out of one of the classrooms and replaced them with about a dozen giant sandboxes, sandbox mm -hmm. table or sand tables. And those became where they, you know, would mold the sand to, to make the terrain and create new scenarios. And it just sort of became a decision-making lab 
um, that really changed the way we trained lieutenants. And and so the workbook then, did it sort of lay out this whole methodology for how to develop TDGs and how to execute them? And uh, Mastering Tactics was a, was a workbook that I, I wrote in 94. It had 15 sort of classic TDGs in it. It didn't really talk about um, how to design them and how to how to facilitate the sessions. Um, I did that in a few other articles that subsequently mm-hmm. got put together in in uh, in a workbook by the Marine Corps University. So yeah, so that that stuff about how to do it was permeating as well. Right. Awesome. So so you are definitely the TDG guy. I think uh, most folks uh, think of you as the TDG guy. Um, can you talk about other kinds of projects you work on that we might say are sort of NDM relevant? Sure. I mean, so in addition to sort of trying to improve decision-making throughout the Marine Corps, I've exported it a little bit into the Army and um, had a little success there, but not not nearly the success that um, that we've had with the Marine Corps. Um, I, I developed with Gary a, a project called Decision Skills Training, which was a, a project to improve the decision-making of rifle squad leaders in the Marine Corps as part of a broader experiment called the Hunter-Warrior uh, Exercises. And so we actually created a, a training program built around TDGs, but including other elements like, you know, pre-mortems and, and those kinds of things to, to help improve the decision-making skills of, of uh, NCOs in the Marine Corps, um, developed a, uh, a decision skills training program for law enforcement officers in California in conjunction with the Peace Officer Standards and Training Division of, uh, in California, um, 16 basically shadow box exercises with expert feedback and uh, meeting after every every week for a sort of a, a discussion group to drill down deeper into the scenarios. Um, developed some scenarios for firefighters. Um, we've developed um, some scenarios for um, sort of uh, program managers and technology programs, which I thought was going to be really, really hard to do, um, but it turned out to be fairly successful. So, so we've managed to export the, the methodology into a number of different domains. I don't, I don't think we've ever had the success that we had with the Marine Corps, but uh, I think a lot of the reason for that success is that um, we did it for so long and, and it, the, the effort was so extensive um, that it was really able to be institutionalized just, you know, shoot through sheer mass and, and repetition. Right. Right. So just to make the connection uh, for listeners. So um, you mentioned Shadowbox and um, w- would you characterize Shadowbox as sort of a computational instantiation of the TDG process or do you think about it any differently? I, I don't think about it as a computational instantiation. That's mm. uh, that's quite a mouthful. Uh, I think of it as uh, sort of the next the next generation of TDGs with built-in expert feedback. So typically, uh, when you run an, a TDG scenario, a, a seminar, you know you're there with a group of students and you have a facilitator and and he creates the scenario and he says, "What's your answer?" You know, give me your orders, and then he'll give this student some feedback, and you'll have a discussion. But but you have the facilitator there, and you have his expertise to be injected in into the discussion and to provide feedback. Um, the the idea behind Shadowbox is what if you what if you can't get your hands on that expert? It becomes a bottleneck, and you and you can't you can't accomplish the training. So what you do instead is you create decision points in the scenario. You ask the students, all right, what are you going to do? A, B, C, or D. They make their pick, they give their rationale for why, and then they get to see how a select group of experts already handled that exact same scenario. So you get to, as Gary likes to say, see the world through the eyes of experts. So, so a shadow box exercise is, is really a, a tactical decision game with expert feedback already embedded in it. If that Got makes it. sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it does. So to tie this back to your TDGs in the Gazette, then was there a similar sort of here's how other experts would have handled this situation in the um, TDGs that were in the Gazette? In well, in the the closest to the expert would be the author, right? So no. um, the the solution that were published in the next issue would always include the author's solution among among the solutions. Now you might not agree that that the author qualified as an expert, but mm-hmm. um, that was the closest to sort of the official solution that there was. Although um, I always went to, to lengths to say there is no right answer here. There is no school solution. 
Um, this is just like everything else. This is just just food for thought. So no, the short answer is I, I, I guess there was no expert feedback per se, but I will say that over the years, the maneuverist mentality, um, and I was a true believer in maneuver warfare, kind of, you know, gained influence because um, at least one of the solutions was always a maneuverist kind of a solution. And it wasn't just the solution. Then you also had to offer an, a, a rationale, right? So you had to explain why you were doing what you were doing and what the underlying principles were that you were applying to this problem. So John, I wanted to ask kind of a basic question. Sometimes I'm talking to people who don't work in the military domain and they'll say, I think, you know, I, I would think military decision-making is, is very top-down and regimented. People are following orders. Um, what's interesting about that? Um, do you ever get those kinds of questions and how do you respond to or help people reframe if they come in with that kind of mindset? So, so people do come in with that kind of mindset. I, I, in that instance, I love to be able to do a TDG with them. And I, I have done a TDG, a military scenario with other groups and uh, expose them to, to just what actually happens and what the reality is and, and how um, the situation's never what you expected were and how most of the time the orders you were given are obsolete within 90 minutes and you've got to improvise and, and you know, make decisions on your own authority, but try to make those decisions consistent with what you understand the bigger objective to be. Um, so I, I tried to demonstrate it that way just through experience. And if I can't, I'd, I try to explain it to them. But, but you're right. It, you do find yourself disabusing people of this idea that, that, that the whole process is very mechanistic and top down and as a company commander or platoon commander or even a battalion commander, uh, all you're doing is executing the orders that you were given. It's, it's not like that at all. Actually, can I ask a follow-up question on that? So you mentioned several domains that you've sort of exported to. Uh, have there been any domains that were particularly resistant to this approach or TDGs or, you know, kind of your overarching perspective? No, but usually I'm there talking to them because they've invited me because they're, they're interested in that approach in the first place. Um, and there were, there were plenty of people in the Marine Corps initially who were opposed to that because even back then in the Marine Corps, um, a lot of senior leaders were uncomfortable with this idea of, of um, giving juniors a lot of latitude and a lot of authority to, to act on their own initiative. Uh, so that was a cultural change that had to take place within the Marine Corps. And you find that in other organizations. But by and large, I was there because somebody in the organization had asked me to be there and was interested in this approach in the first place. And, and when you think about it, uh, I mean, TDGs only make sense in a system in which subordinates are expected to make independent decisions. If, if the system is highly centralized and there's one decision maker and everybody else is just expected to execute, then you have no reason to do TDGs, right? Because nobody else is, is making decisions. Everybody else is just executing like a robot. So, so the whole logic of, of using TDGs is sort of premised on an organization that expects people to be making decisions at every echelon of the organization. So, John, I know, you know, you, um, maybe more than most, really come from an operational community. Um, that's your own personal background. And then you've worked in all these other high stakes environments, but you're also really comfortable arguing in the research world. Um, and so I'm wondering what, as you think about kind of both sides of this equation, what, what is the message that you're trying to convey to both sides there? That's a great question. Um, first of all, I'm not sure I would say I'm comfortable in the research world. I've, um, I think I've learned to exist there, but I can't say that I'm completely comfortable in it. In it. Um, let me, so let me answer this way. Um, the first NDM conference I went to was NDM2 in 1993 in Dayton, I think, and that's where you and I met. You were a young research ass assistant at Klein Associates, and you got stuck at the same table with me and a bunch of other Marines, and I always felt sorry for you for that. Uh, and I didn't go to another one until 2019 in San Francisco when you were actually running the thing. So you went from a, a, a research assistant to running the NDM conference. And, and my impression, so I had two data points, a total of two data points. Um, and it was nothing more than really a vague recollection, right? Because um, it was a quarter of a century apart. Um, but my vague recollection was that, th that there had been a shift in emphasis 
toward research. It, the, the community seemed to be more research oriented. And I would say that I would like to see it more balanced, right? And so if I had a message for the, the operators, for the practitioners, it would be get more engaged, learn more about the theory and the research and, and take more of a leadership role in establishing the agenda of the NDM movement. And, and don't just think of yourself as the subject of the researchers, right? You're not just there to be poked and prodded and watched by the researchers. Take an active role in, in where the NDM movement goes. Um, I'd like to see more of that because I think we need more of the operational perspective in the community. And to the researchers, I would just say, you know, um, try and, and draw the practitioners out and, and just do your absolute best to listen to them. I'm not, I'm not saying that you don't. Uh, the researchers don't, but but really try to draw them out and 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 make it more of a collaboration um, to the extent you can. So that would be my my message to both sides. I like it. Um, this seems like a good time to mention the upcoming meeting that you are planning, which is a little non-traditional. It's it's not very academic. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, the upcoming NDM meeting? I'm happy to talk about the upcoming NDM meeting, and you're right. And and precisely one of the reasons that I, I tried to shift it was to make it more practice oriented. So uh, my intent is to make the the proceedings much more experiential. In addition to having sort of the typical type of of paper presentations and poster sessions, uh, we're planning to have a number of experiential exercises, TDGs, war games training demonstrations, various different workshops. You and Brian are putting on a, a cognitive task analysis workshop, for example. Gary Klein is, is putting on a master class on the pre-mortem, uh, and there will be a number of, of things like that. So my hope is that anybody who goes there, uh, whatever their interests are, whether they're a researcher who's deeply steeped in theory or they're a novice who's just become interested in NDM for the first time, they're going to find something of interest to them, and they're going to get a lot out of the experience. So I'm, I'm really excited. It's going to be chaotic. It's going to be crazy. I know that. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited about sort of creating this, ener this energetic environment where we're going to, you know, be able to learn things from each other and collaborate and experiment and workshop and, and come out with some really interesting ideas. Agreed. And, and we've been talking as we plan this about this idea. I like your notion earlier of exporting. Um, so there's a lot of great stuff that goes on in the NDM community, and we're trying to sort of get the word out. I, I want to pull on that thread with you a little bit. So again, you, you've been invited to these places and um, folks have taken an interest in your work. I'm curious about uh, if you have any good stories about someone being attracted to your work or kind of reaching out to you kind of out of the blue where uh, they seem to make uh, a leap of faith, if you will, that what you were doing would be useful in their domain and, and any kind of surprises uh, that have come along there or just generally, what, what do you think attracts people to this whole idea of, of TDGs and, um, and what you're offering? I, I think, first of all, because it's experiential, Mm. Um, you know, so it's not just theoretical, you're, you're getting to do it and feel it and, and experience it. And, um, I, I try to make them as, as engaging as possible by making them realistic and, and challenging and a little bit different. I mean, I always try to, anytime I develop a scenario to, to have a few twists and turns in there and there's always uncertainty and, and something unexpected almost always happens. Um, and I, I think that makes more engaging for people and, and also makes it more, more valuable as a, um, as a training exercise, because if, if you if you develop a plan and everything goes according to plan, then, you know, what do you learn? But if you develop a plan and everything falls apart and you have to improvise on your feet, you know, now you're you're learning things and you're learning to deal with the pressure and you're learning to, to you know, figure out solutions on the fly and that sort of stuff. So I, I hope that's what attracts people to them to the extent that that it does. And have you found yourself in situations, obviously, if you're doing sort of Marine Corps maneuver warfare, you're, you're pretty comfortable. Have you found yourself in situations where you were facilitating uh, TDG and, and it didn't go well? Uh, or, you know, where have you kind of struggled to get traction? Some audiences have been harder than others. Mm -hmm. um, there was, a, there was a, a military audience at Fort Benning. We were working with the Army. 
And um, some of the guys were some fairly senior NCOs who had recently come back from a deployment in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, and they were very strong personalities. And if you've got one really, really strong personality in the group, that can really sort of throw the whole dynamic of, of the group out of whack. And so he had this one guy who was very much a by the numbers kind of a guy uh, who's, you know, no way in hell do I, you know, you do what I told you to and, and nothing else. And, and so that, that was a hard group to work with when you get that kind of experience. So sometimes managing the group because of personalities, um, can be, can be challenging. Um, the, the, maybe the most interesting you asked about some odd, um, you know, places where interest came from, you know, that somebody out of the blue approached me when I was fairly early on, during the Marine Corps Gazette days, when I, I authored most of the early ones for the first few years, um, I started getting letters from a guy who was in Walla Walla State Penitentiary, I think in Washington. He was he was serving a life sentence for first degree murder, but he somehow was getting the Marine Corps Gazette and submitting solutions every single month to the tactical decision game in the Marine Corps Gazette, and he wrote to the editor and said, you know, can you pass this on to John Schmidt? And so the editor, thank goodness, never actually gave him my direct address or anything like that, but would forward these letters. And so I was started this sort of pen pal relationship with this guy who was, he had been, I think, a private first class in the Marine Corps and got out after, or after one tour, or maybe even got dishonorably discharged. I don't know, but he was a murderer now and he was in prison, but he was doing TDGs every month and sending me letters explaining in detail why he was doing what he was doing and, you know, all his grandiose strategies and, and stuff like that. So that was a really sort of interesting um, experience that, that, um, that came out of nowhere. It's mostly, uh, it's mostly guys, people in, in military, law enforcement, firefighting, those kinds of domains where you're making split second life or death kinds of decisions. Those are the people who seem most interested in, in this kind of, in this kind of approach who realize that you just, you don't have the time to consider options and compare options. You've, you've got to have another way of, of making reasonable decisions. And, and uh, they, they seem to be the kind of people who are most interested in this approach and most attracted to it. Well, it sounds like a great hire for the shadow box danger division. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. I'll, I'm, I'm going to talk to Gary about that. <laughs> I, I want to pull a bit on the uh, uh, recognitional planning model. Uh, and you started off talking about your uh, qualms with MDMP. And of course, the recognitional planning model was intended, I believe, to be uh, a off uh, to, to an alternative. An alternative. Yes, that's the word I'm looking it, for. It was explicitly an alternative to the MDMP. So the MDMP, it's called the military decision-making process. It is as much a process about directing the actions of us and, and coordinating and synchronizing the actions of a staff as it is actually about decision-making, right? And any, any military planning process has, serves two functions, I think. One is to help people make decisions, and the other is to, to efficiently coordinate and synchronize the efforts of the staff. Unfortunately, I think most of the, the planning models that, that the military has developed are much better at the latter than they are at the former. So they're, they're not really helping you make good decisions. Sometimes they're getting in the way of that, but they're feeding this big production line that is the staff planning process, right? And so our effort was, well, for one thing, to try and streamline that process, but also to try to develop a process that actually did a better job of, of helping people make decisions by not forcing them to do unnatural cognitive things, but, but taking advantage of, you know, the, the things that human beings do, do well and do naturally, right? So build a planning process around that. That was our effort. Right. And so you mentioned the streamlining piece that was actually empirically validated, right? With Peter Thunholm's work. Yes. Yes. Um, it, it, uh, the, the RPM got a little bit of traction for a while and then it, um, it kind of disappeared. Um, the military adopted parts of it. They, they, um, the MDMP, um, they developed a variation of the MDMP called the directed COA approach, which is the CO, the commanding officer doesn't 
ask for three courses of action and then go through the war gaming and, and comparing. But the, the CO just directs a course of action. And then the process pretty much picks up the way it always was. Um, so they kind of incorporated that into the MDMP, but they never really fully adopted the RPM in its entirety. Um, I still do once in a, every once in a while, I do get a letter from somebody saying, Hey, did you, are you the person who wrote the RPM? And, you know, and I really like it, but, um, never really caught on. So John, one of the fun things about these NDM podcasts is learning about influences outside of the NDM community. So if you kind of reflect back on your career, who are some of the major influences that aren't part of the core NDM community that have really influenced the way you think? Are we talking individuals or broader experiences? Either one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so obviously the Marine Corps, it's, I think it's impossible to become part of the Marine Corps without having that become a major influence on your life, your worldview, you know, your sense of self. I mean, so that was, so that was hugely important to me. Uh, before the Marine Corps, I, I would have to say the Jesuits and my dad, my dad was Jesuit educated. Um, my dad was fond of saying that whatever you're studying with the, whatever you think you're studying with the Jesuits, you're actually studying philosophy. So that whole sort of Jesuitical worldview, I think I, I internalized that quite a bit. Um, so, so my, my dad and the Jesuit priest that, 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 um, that trained me, um, Gary's been an influence, but Gary's in the community. Um, I mean, several Marine Corps officers that I've known, uh, retired Lieutenant General PK Van Riper has been a mentor for me for years. And we continue to work on projects together and, and we probably talk about decision-making issues or issues close to decision-making, you know, pretty much on a, on a weekly basis. We actually just finished a, a series of, a monthly series of articles in the Gazette called the Maneuverous Papers, um, which is sort of a retrospective on how maneuver warfare doctrine developed and what, where we thought it was heading for the future. And so a lot of that had to do with discussions of decision-making and, and decentralization and things like that. So uh, he was a major influence on my life. Uh, General L. Gray, who was the commandant when I wrote Warfighting, um, was very influential. Uh, General Tony Zinni um, was a former commander of CENTCOM, um, has been kind of a mentor to me over the years. So your voice cut out there when you were saying the name, I think of, of um, Lieutenant General uh, Van Riper. Is that right? Yes. I just want to make sure we got his name. So that that's the person you've been doing the writing with recently. Correct. Yeah. Nice. Yes. Okay. Uh, great. So, so a lot of your influences were kind of um, philosophical, like uh, ways of looking at the world. Those are the kinds of things that come to mind for you, the Marine Corps, the Jesuit priests, your dad, um, and then these military leaders who you had an opportunity to interact with over the years. Yes. And I would, I guess to that, I would add um, an interest in systems theory, complexity, mm -hmm. complex adaptive systems, which I, I first became exposed to when I was writing Marine Corps doctrine, I was, I was looking for ways to explain the nature of war, the, you know, at sort of at a fundamental level, the, the essential dynamics of war. And um, military theorists have long turned to the science of their day to try to find metaphors for explaining warfare. So, so Clausewitz, the great Prussian theorist of the early 19th century, talked about friction and center of gravity um, and culminating point. These were concepts that came out of Newtonian mechanics, which was the cutting edge science of his day. Um, and so I was sort of similarly looking for ways to, to explain warfare that would make sense to a 21st century audience. And I came across complexity theory, which I thought explained a lot of, of those dynamics. And, and so uh, I've for years been very interested in, in systems thinking and general systems theory, uh, complex adaptive systems, complexity science, um, and those kinds of things. And they, they, they continue to influence my thinking about um, decision-making and design, uh, systemic operational design, for example, how, how, you, how you come up with solutions to very large-scale, complex problems. They've, that's all been influenced by what I've learned and continue to learn about complexity and systems. And also, I have to say, that's a, that's a very Jesuitical kind of approach as well. Um, that I probably started getting back in my high school days from Father Bill O'Malley. 
Wow. So one of the things I've been lucky enough to interact with you uh, quite a bit over the last few years. And so one of the things I really admire is your ability to take these complex philosophical principles and um, instantiate them in a game that makes people think and experience the different pressures um, that, in a way that feels very real, that, that doesn't feel philosophical. Um, so I, I think that's just a, a really important and interesting contribution uh, that you make. And I want to encourage any listeners to come to the NDM meeting and get a chance to participate in some of these games that John designs. We're, we're going to do a couple. And thank you. I, 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 I mean, I, I'm a serious believer in, or a strong believer in serious play. And, and I think games can be a very serious tool for, for helping us to, to better understand the problems that we face. Uh, I'm, I'm all about trying to gamify training and, and research and just trying to understand the world around us. And first of all, like I said, it, it makes it more engaging. But, but I also think it, it, it really is a useful approach from a, a cognitive point of view. Right. It just it really crystallizes issues in a way that is hard to get from reading an article. <laughs> it does. It makes it it makes it real. It makes it concrete. You know, you're yeah. not just talking in vagaries. You're you're here's a situation that we've actually created in this game because of the things we've done and said. Now we've got to deal with it. So, John, following up on that, I'll we'll start to wrap up with our fun question. So, pretend you meet a stranger who tells you that they conduct TDGs. What's the one question you ask to test whether they are a legitimate TDG person? That's easy. Hit me with your best TDG. Let's do it right now. So, they'd have to run the whole thing? They would, they would have to run the TDG with me, sure. I mean, what, what, other, what other way is there to know? Yeah, let's, let's do your TDG. Stump me. Right. So there's a, I'm kind of going back to this scenario development, writing the TDG piece versus facilitating and creating that experience for people. I wonder if you can sort of tie that together for folks because those feel like they could be separate activities, possibly even done by different groups of people. Um, and involve different skills. Is that a fair thing to say, or do you kind of see it as all as one? I, I see it all as one because that's mostly been my experience, although I have run TDGs that were authored by other people. Um, I, so I, I, think they are, I think they are distinct skill sets. Uh, I do think that you're, pro you're, you're probably best at facilitating a scenario that you created yourself because you understand it better you understand the logic of how it was developed and that sort of thing, and you, and you appreciate the ins and outs and, and, and whatnot. So you're probably better at facilitating your own scenarios than you are at somebody else's, but that doesn't mean that, that you can't. Um, the, the scenario authoring process, it, it's a creative process. It's, it, I think of it as telling a story, right? So there's a beginning, there's a middle and an end, and there's a protagonist, there's a hero. Sort of, it's, it's kind of a hero quest, you know? So you're the hero you're a company commander or whatever you are, you, these are your resources, here's your quest, this is the mission, you start to execute your mission, things start to happen and then unexpected things start to happen and then things start to fall apart and then the villain arrives and now you find yourself hanging upside down you know, by a chain over the, the pit of boiling acid, right? And, and the announcer says, come, by, you know, uh, uh, you know, come back next week to see what happens to our hero. But at that point, you turn it over to the trainee and say, okay, it's your job to tell the rest of the story and figure out how we solve this thing. So I really do take a storytelling approach. I, I do not, and, and I really just try to create an interesting and challenging dilemma. I don't, uh, I don't ever start a, a writing a TDG with the solution in mind, um, right? Which a lot of, that's a mistake I think a lot authors, especially early authors make is they have an idea in mind and they, they try to reverse engineer as a scenario to justify it. And in my experience, those kind of scenarios look, um, they look fake, right? Um, you can tell that they're actually leading somewhere rather than trying to create a true decision dilemma. They're just, it's a lecture disguised as a decision exercise. And they're just looking for a chance to tell you what they're, what, their theory is. Uh, so don't start with the solution and work backwards. Just start with an interesting challenge or interesting dilemma and be confident that if you create an interesting and realistic and challenging dilemma, there's going to be some valuable lessons that will come out of it. 
Um, so I don't, I don't know what I'm doing when I do one. Typically, the, the very first one I wrote, Enemy Over the Bridge, like I said, I started with a blank piece of paper. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. And it was this blank piece of paper was, it was just imposing. So I just drew a line down the middle just to somehow compartmentalize it and make it seem like it was a smaller problem. And I said, okay, that's a river. And I said, okay, well, there's a river. Where there's a river, somewhere there's a bridge. So I drew a bridge. And I go, well, the reason there's a bridge is because there's a road. So I drew a couple of roads. And those roads usually will go somewhere. So I built a town. And the roads weaved around a little bit. And I said, well, why would a road bend like that? I guess maybe because it had to go around a hill. So I drew these hills. Um, I had no idea where, and then I'm like, all right, you're coming down and you're, and you're going to cross the bridge and you discover that the enemy is at the bridge or you bump into the enemy on the way to the bridge unexpectedly. What are you going to do about it? And that, that was the scenario. But my point was I had, I had no idea in advance where I was trying to go. I didn't have any learning objectives or anything in mind. I was just scribbling on a map and I always start with the map first. I was just scribbling on a map and creating some interesting terrain and then figuring out how that can turn into an interesting problem for somebody. And then once I got the basic dynamics, then you can sort of tweak it and, and, and you know, plug in different, different uh, inputs and, and that sort of stuff. And then you get to finally what I call um, the, the, uh, the trigger, which is sort of the final thing that happens that forces you to say, okay, I got to do something now. Right. So the trigger event is the thing that that now sort of forces the dilemma to come up and and you've got to you've got to uh, solve it. And, and so that's that's the approach that I take anyway to um, to facilitating. Um, it's just a lot of asking questions and drawing people out and um, trying to get them to explain themselves and trying to, if you can, pit people against each other and get people to be learning from each other by criticizing each other or asking each other questions. It's not a lot of lecturing. I, I try not to impose my solution on people, I, but I, I just try, try to sort of create an environment where the self-learning can take place. And if I get stumped, and I do get stumped, even in military scenarios, even in ones that I've created, um, it, I've, I've never done enemy over the, I've done enemy over the bridge probably over a hundred times. It's never gone exactly the same way. I know some things are always going to come up in enemy over the bridge, but I still get surprised. And so usually when I get surprised, my fallback is I go, why? I just, I just say, explain yourself. Why, why do you say that? And meanwhile, I'm scrambling to try to figure out, you know, what's going on here and get my own bearings and get, and, and get my feet back on the ground because they just threw me for a loop. So I'm buying time at the same time that I'm asking them to sort of explain themselves. So, so that's kind of, so it is two very different skill sets, um, I guess, to answer the question. And that's sort of, that's my approach to both anyway. Other people have done it differently. Right. So I said we're going to wrap up, but you just opened up a whole series of questions. I'll just ask one. Okay. Um, so, so, so you say that is your approach, and it sounds like a very sort of emergent, creative approach, which I believe is is a bit different than um, creating, say, a, a shadow box scenario that might come from a number of critical decision method interviews where there was an outcome, for instance. Is that um, is that a different approach, or is that complementary to yours? How, how do the two sort of fit together? Um, awkwardly, yeah. I, I guess I would say, uh, I still try to, I, I still prefer the create an interesting problem approach. So even, even if the idea for the scenario comes from an interview that we did with somebody, um, I'm more interested in the dilemma that they've described to us than I am in the way they solved it. Because the way they solved it, we have this sort of idea that the way things turned out or the way they had to turn out. That was, and that was, in fact, the only right answer, especially if you're talking to a guy who told you about this because he thinks that it was one of the best moments of his career, right? Mm -hmm. So he thinks it was a good outcome. Uh, you're not, you don't often get a lot of stories about you know, where I, you made a whole bunch of terrible decisions, right? People don't tend to share those as often. So um, we have this tendency to think that the way it turned out was the way it had to turn out. It was sort of preordained. And of course, that's not at all true. So um, I focus more on the, on the dilemma and on the problem and creating an interesting scenario out of that than I do on this is a, this was an experience that that taught this lesson. The lesson will emerge naturally or or organically if you if you get the problem 
set up right. So, so yeah, we do, I mean, we do know how it turned out and we do sort of know the lessons that that person that we interviewed took from it. Um, but I try not to let those guide me too much. I still try to focus on, um, on the problem. Now, not everybody does. I mean, my colleague, Joseph Borders, who, who develops very good scenarios himself, Joseph has much more of an engineering scientific kind of a mind and he will he will sort of identify some learning objectives and and create a scenario out of that he won't say he won't start with a right answer right necessarily uh, but he will start with some learning objectives and try to create a scenario and and that's what works for him this is all very interesting and i'm really getting excited about the upcoming conference because I know we're going to be having these kinds of conversations, not only having people experience TDGs, but really talk about this creative uh, and the, just the different approaches that are out there for, for achieving this, the same end, right? You're still trying to teach decision-making, but um, we've got fodder to work with from our interviews. Uh, and yet there's this posing of a dilemma, which, which can be generic, uh, but still sort of gets people thinking. So I'm, I'm really excited to have people experience these uh, at the conference. And um, I guess as a prelude to that, they could go to the uh, archive issues of the Marine Corps Gazette and see some of your early work, right? Isn't that, that stuff's available somewhere? It is. It is. Um, actually, you have to have a subscription to the Gazette, but if you yeah. do, you can get into the archives and, and you can see TDGs going back um, probably 20 years or so. You can also go to the Shadowbox website. We have a Shadowbox of the Month exercise. So every month we put up a new scenario. Um, I think the next one is going to be a soccer scenario, actually. Uh, but we've had law enforcement. We've had military. Um, we've had child protective services. We've had uh, just uh, teenagers driving a car, trying to get to the, to the movie theater on time. Um, so yeah, go to the shadow box website and you'll see, um, a bunch of different scenarios, shadow box exercises in, in different domains there as well. And I love how you brought it back around to the conference. Um, thank you for doing that. It's going to be a great experience. And I, I really, really, really encourage people to sign up and join us. Agreed. And look forward to seeing you there. And, um, Laura, did you have any last questions? Uh, just wanted, no, I didn't, but I just wanted to mention that if you do want to um, sign up for the conference, it's at uh, naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. Awesome. So we'll see everybody there. This is such a core component, I think, uh, to this idea of accelerating expertise, uh, this idea of kind of learning ostensibly through other people's experience and, uh, and working with those hard problems getting the kinds of feedback either from experts or peers or, uh, or, or just the scenario itself. So this is just such a, I think, a, a, a critical part of, of what we talk about in NDM that um, appreciate you joining us, John, to, to walk through your NDM journey um, and for speaking with us today. It's really been a pleasure. And on that note, thanks again for the NDM podcast. I'm Brian Moon. I'm Laura Militello. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.